Well, dear friends, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Chronicles 32. If you want to use the Bible underneath your chair, you can find where we are on page 383. Page 383. We're looking together at 2 Chronicles 32 and considering the first half of this chapter as we make our way through the book of Chronicles. Uh, We are approaching the end, uh, but we have seen kind of the rise and fall of the people of God through various difficulties, and we have been on a high point for a couple of weeks with Hezekiah's reforms, and now we're going to hit some trouble. Well, let me pray for us, and then we will begin reading our text. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before You knowing our need of You to help us as we read the Word. Lord, it is Your Word that sanctifies us, and we pray that that sanctifying power would be at work in our hearts. We pray that we would take delight in Your Word, that Your Word would be hidden within us, that the principles of Your truth would be lodged deeply in our hearts so as to bring about transformation. And Father, we pray that You would give us the ability to focus our minds on what You're teaching us. For we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, we're looking at 2 Chronicles 32, verses 1-19. to Give attention as I read God's Word. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city. And they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? He set to work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it. And outside it he built another wall and he strengthened the millow in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. And he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. After this, Sennacherib king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria. Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem 
Before one altar you shall worship, and on it you shall burn your sacrifices. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? And his servant said still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, Like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they might take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. Well, thus far, God's holy word. And may He take His Word and bless it to our hearts. Sometime in the 1830s, while in modern-day Iraq, a British colonel named Robert Taylor made a landmark discovery. He found a 15-inch by 3.5-inch six-sided prism with ancient writing wrapping around the hole. Now this relatively small item, you know, it's only about yay tall, was a huge archaeological find because it detailed the kingdom of Assyria, particularly Sennacherib's campaigns against Judah and particularly Hezekiah. Now some 30 years before the event of our text, starting with Tiglath-Pileser III, or Pul as he's sometimes called in the Bible, Assyria had seized control of the northern kingdom of Israel, the city of Samaria. Hezekiah's father in the south, Ahaz, was pleased to lick the boots of Assyrian power. But Hezekiah, we have seen, is different. Though Assyria eventually laid waste to the northern kingdom and the city of Samaria, and had hundreds of thousands of people deported, deposed, or put to death, Hezekiah did not kowtow to Assyrian power. Rather, he radically reformed the true worship of the Lord and threw off his father Ahaz's love of the kingdom of Assyria. But then came the years of testing. Sennacherib had assumed the Assyrian throne around the year of 704 B.C., many years after Hezekiah had started reforms. And Sennacherib began to press against Judah. According to the Taylor prism, again that little archaeological find as it was called, in Sennacherib's advances against Judah, he took 46 cities, over 200,000 prisoners, exacted great tributes from Hezekiah, which 2 Kings 18 record, and he had Hezekiah, and I quote, shut up like a caged bird 
within Jerusalem. Now, the Taylor prism confirms the very bleak picture the Bible paints three times of our scene. We see this scene in 2 Kings 18 and 19. We see it in this text. We see it again in Isaiah 36 and 37. Other than the Gospel accounts, which are obviously of monumental significance, which have some stories three and even four times, this is the only historical account in all the Bible recorded three particular times. That means it's important. The repetition in Kings, Chronicles, and Isaiah have different emphases, but God is telling us something He really wants us to get. Hezekiah and his people are placed here in the blazing fires of affliction. But those fires are going to prove to be refining fires rather than ruining fires. Because our God is pleased to deepen the faith of His people through testing them. And we're going to note four things as we make our way through this text. First, I want you to see with me crisis. And we see it in verse 1. The text reports to us an important element of timing. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, that is, after all the years of Hezekiah's reforms, after his wholehearted service to the Lord to cleanse the land of idols, to faithfully restore daily temple worship, yearly festivals, the regular teaching of the people of God, then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. The crucial thing for us to see here is the prelude to Assyria's attack. You see, when Assyria waylaid the northern kingdom of Israel, it was because of Israel's rebellion. 200 years of evil kings. Repeated rejection of prophetic warning like Elijah and Elisha had given. Ongoing pattern of Baal worship at Dan and Bethel. It had all provoked the Lord to anger. So Samaria came to be crushed. But in this case, while Hezekiah's father had ate Israel with his idolatry, Hezekiah stopped that. Hezekiah was commended for faithfulness. The Lord was blessing His people. And it was evident by the joy in the city. We've seen them having festival and going on for a second week. The massive giving, they're finally giving to take care of the Levites. The Lord is raining down His favor upon Judah. And yet, even while Hezekiah has a heart like no other king since David, still, the Lord brought a brutal nation with aims to bully Hezekiah into submission. You should ask here, Lord, How can this be? I thought obedience brought blessing. Isn't a siege, doesn't that seem to go with ungodliness? Isn't this an evidence of covenant curse? What are we to make of this situation when acts of faithfulness are followed by a fierce enemy coming to win God's people for Himself? Well, brethren, it is a general principle that obedience brings blessing. But we also need to recognize, like unlike Job's friends, that is, that faith in the Lord and allegiance to God isn't a magic bubble to shield you and me from tragedy. 
Our God, in His own good purposes, is pleased to refine our faith in the fire. God brings tests even to His faithful people. The Lord raises up hardship. And these difficulties may have no direct relation to individual or national sin at all. We see that truth in the life of Joseph, in the life of Job, in the life of Daniel. Indeed, it's a principle we must note as believers today because our God promised that we will face various difficulties because He sends us out as sheep amidst wolves. Beloved, you can have a resolute trust in God and still watch the Assyrians roll in to plunder. You can cling to the Lord in sincerity and be thrown into jail like Peter. You can be beaten like Paul and Silas. You can have your money taken away from you like Jason at Thessalonica. You can be lay low, in, lay low with sickness like Lazarus or countless other troubles. We have to recognize that living the faithful life doesn't function like a rabbit's foot to drive away bad things, whatever those bad things are. The chronicler is making it very clear that faithful living may well land you in the fire. But it's only when the fire burns that faith is purified, deepened, and enabled to put on muscle. So we need to see as we enter the whole text that the crisis is a crisis sovereignly given to grow faith. And we need to recognize that this is often how the Lord works. He made His people hunger in the wilderness. The, Jesus took the disciples through a storm. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. It's why we can count it all joy when we suffer trials of various kinds. Because we know God's doing something. Now we can be honest, it's not that we love the Assyrians moving in with their forces to tear up our cities and to take away our loved ones and to torch our houses. Those are awful realities. But our reigning Lord overrules the trouble to teach us to trust Him. That's what's about to happen throughout this passage. So the lesson on the front end is that the Lord is teaching us to trust Him in our trials. He has a purpose to purify us that we would be led to greater degrees of perseverance. So that's what we see at the outset. But then secondly, see with me, counsel. Not only crisis, but counsel. Now, it's a pattern worth noting in Hezekiah's life that he's not only a faithful man, a great leader who's spearheading reforms, but that he doesn't act in a dictatorial fashion. Hezekiah is the king, and obviously as king he has great power, but Hezekiah frequently confers with his leaders to make decisions for the welfare of the people. He did this back in chapter 29 with the temple restoration. He gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. He did it again in chapter 30 when determining to celebrate Passover in the second month. The king and his princes and all the assembly of Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. And now in a fresh crisis... Hezekiah once more turns not to his own resources in his heart, he turns to the leaders. Look at verse 2. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against the city, he planned with his officers and his mighty men. 
Now we'll see what his plan was in a second. But for now, just note that it was a jointly developed plan. Now, when trouble hits us, that's often the time that we go rogue. It's the time when we make fast and furious decisions without consulting anybody. And such hasty choices in the midst of our calamity, like Saul's rash vow in the war in 1 Samuel 14, nobody can eat any food while we're fighting, and it got him in trouble as his son ate some honey to be revived. That can bring either fur even further trouble upon us and our people. The wisdom of Proverbs actually speaks to us precisely at this point. Proverbs 15.22 Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. Or Proverbs 20, verse 18. Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. In other words, you don't recklessly press ahead in a crisis with a let's just wing it mentality. Jumping to conclusions, making, making hurried choices without considering the implications of those choices. Of course, we are not tonight facing an Assyrian horde on the outskirts of our city, but we are in a spiritual war. The devil is always prowling, always looking to devour, and he will use anything to sink us. Financial distress, job loss, tough medical news, family dysfunction, and on and on I could go. And when we encounter these afflictions, we don't need to be left alone left to our individual wits to figure out what to do. Yes, it's humbling to have to reveal your crisis to other people. Yes, it may mean someone is going to get in your business. And in our pride, we don't like that. But surely, we should see that we don't have all the answers in our trouble. And if we look at our track record of how we've done in trouble, we'll probably see we've messed it up quite a bit. Hezekiah isn't interested in making impetuous, unhelpful decisions that only make matters worse. So he makes a plan with his officers and with his military men. He wants a battle strategy. Shouldn't we want a battle strategy in fighting our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil? Wouldn't it be best to consult the godly, the wise, hopefully your elders, on how to engage in spiritual war effectively? Surely there's a principle here for us all to learn. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. The implication is you're going to talk to the brother born for adversity and how to help you. Brethren, that's what we're supposed to do for one another. Hezekiah gets it. Well, in our text, there's a brewing physical war. And the plan is to ensure that Sennacherib's army can't do what opposing armies normally did in the midst of a siege. An army would move in, surround the city, and seize the water supply. Sennacherib's men will not have the will to fight if there's no water for them. And Jerusalem could withstand many days of siege if they had access to water. So the king and his men decided, verse 3, to stop up the water of the springs that were outside the city. And that's what they did. The counselors aren't ivory tower planners. They are men who get involved and help the king. So they assembled, verse 4, a great many people and ensured Assyria wouldn't have a ready water supply. 
And to further confirm the truthfulness of Scripture here, we can speak about another archaeological discovery. In 1867, the explorer Charles Warren discovered a shaft in Jerusalem which allowed for the water of the Gihon Spring, just outside the city walls of Jerusalem, to flow to the Pool of Siloam, just inside the walls of Jerusalem. Several years later, an inscription was found in that tunnel which described the construction of what came to be called Hezekiah's tunnel. In an engineering marvel, the inscription speaks of two teams of people cutting through the rock with axes, how long did that take, weaving a serpentine tunnel and meeting each other in the middle. They don't have a laser-guided idea of how to get there. They're cutting underneath and figuring out as they go. And the inscription reads that as they got close, they were calling to each other underground And they heard one another and then connected this 1,800-foot tunnel to divert water into the city. That's amazing. But here's the amazing part. It only confirms what we're reading in the Scripture, that God's Word is true. So they cut this tunnel to take away a water supply, but that was only part of the plan. Hezekiah also, verse 5, set to work resolutely to build up all the wall that was broken down, and he raised towers upon it. These would be watchtowers to defend. And outside it, he built another wall. This is an additional wall that happened to encompass the underground tunnel. Additionally, Hezekiah strengthened the millow. These are the supporting terraces to the wall. And end of verse 5, he made weapons and shields in abundance. Now, some commentators suggest that all these efforts, water diversion, wall repair, weapon making, that it really evidenced in Hezekiah a faithless spirit. Hezekiah did everything he could do first, and only when he got desperate did he actually turn to the Lord. I don't think that's how we should read about these preparations at all. As Matthew Henry puts it here, listen carefully to this, those who do trust God with their safety must yet use the proper means for their safety. Otherwise, they tempt God and do not trust Him. The sense here is taking action to use God's ordinary means for protection is not a faithless move. We trust God by using what God has given to us. We don't pray for financial provision and then never make a budget. We don't pray to know God better and then never read His Word. We don't ask, oh Lord, will you protect us? And then we rule out any fence building, any locks on our doors, any alarm systems, or any implements for defense. Part of wisdom is not only seeking counsel, it's using the resources God has already given to show that we trust Him. Some have called this, God helps those who help themselves, theology. That's a horrible way to look at it. It might better be termed, Faithful living unto the Lord bears the fruit of wisdom and diligence. Brethren, are we being faithful, laboring hard to use the gifts God has given as we trust Him? Do we pray 
and then refuse to stand idly by. It's like praying for people to be converted. We just pray that people would keep, be converted and we never share the gospel with anyone. That's clearly not biblical. Do we understand that the let go, let God position is not biblical at all? God calls us to active faithfulness. You know the words of the New Testament. Fighting, striving, running, wrestling, laboring, serving. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We engage our beings to do stuff, praying that God would bless our labors. We pray against sin, and then we work hard to cut off everything that would give strength to that sin. Walling ourselves off from the enemy coming to attack. That's a principle we need to learn from Hezekiah. But then in the third place, Hezekiah doesn't only have things built as though the physical threat were the chief problem. He speaks to the spiritual and emotional concerns of the people. Third, we see with me confidence. Confidence. After setting, combat, or setting out the combat commanders over the people, verse 8 he, Hezekiah, gathered them together in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them. Or more literally, he spoke to their heart. Now that's an important idiom in Hebrew used on several occasions. For instance, I'll, I'll give you a few of these. When Jacob died in Egypt, Jacob's sons feared that Joseph is now going to get us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they made up a command that their daddy supposedly left to give to Joseph. And they came before Joseph and they said, Daddy said you need to forgive us all the wrong we did to you. Joseph's brothers came with great vulnerability. They're afraid and they come pledging themselves to be Joseph's servants. And of course, Joseph has the power to squash them. But he knew that all that had happened to him was God's providential care to ultimately preserve the people of Abraham. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. So Joseph sees their fear, and literally he spoke to their heart. He persuaded them that he was for them. They needed reassurance and cheering words, and Joseph gave them. That phrase is also used in Ruth chapter 2. Who could be more vulnerable than Ruth? She's a Moabite woman amidst Israel. She's recently widowed. She's poor. She has to work for herself and for her mother-in-law. But Boaz, upon finding her in his field and inquiring of her situation, went and spoke to Ruth. He told her, don't go anywhere else. He exhorted her, stay by my young women so that you're protected. He commanded the men, don't you dare touch her. He made a way for her to have access to water and extra food. And Ruth is stunned by all this kindness and how Boaz's words spoke to her heart. He reassured her. He persuaded her of the kindness of God and he calmed her in the face of her fear. Well, that's exactly what Hezekiah is doing here. He speaks to their heart in view of all their fears. With the Assyrian army surrounding the city, ready to capture Jerusalem, Hezekiah comes to speak a sermon, to preach to the people. And he says to them, verse 7, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria. And all the horde, that is 
with him. I love that word horde. You just imagine snarling people with drool coming out, don't you? This great force is coming against the people of God. And that seems like a crazy command. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid of them, though they're terrifying. How can they fail to be dismayed here? Because as the Assyrian crony will later put it, no nation has been able to deliver this people from Sennacherib's hand. 2 Kings 18 paints a further disgusting detail of distress when Sennacherib sends his ambassador to Jerusalem. The people of the city will soon be told that they'll have to eat their own dung and drink their own urine to survive. In other words, we're going to wipe you out and nothing will be left to you but your own waste. It's a horrifying picture of what's coming. Well, in the eyes of man... All you can see is what's coming. All you can see is what's surrounding Jerusalem. But Hezekiah points the people to unseen things. He says, take courage and throw off your fear because, end of verse 7, there are more with us than with him, a serious king. With him, verse 8, is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord, all caps, with Yahweh our God to help us and to fight our battles. There are numerous echoes of other Scripture here, but maybe the most striking is Moses' words to fearful Israel standing on the bank of the Red Sea with the threatening Egyptian army coming. The people were in a dreadful panic and they began to utter great complaints against Moses and the Lord. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you've brought us out here to die? They're freaking out. And Moses says to them, Fear not, stand firm, and watch the salvation of the Lord. Yahweh will fight for you. That's exactly what Hezekiah is telling the people. He believes Yahweh is a God who rides the heavens to the help of His people. He believes, as history has demonstrated, whether in the days of Moses, or Joshua, or David, or in the Chronicler's account, the situations with Abijah or Asa or Jehoshaphat, that Yahweh will fight for His people. He's done it over and over again. He will come to our aid when superior forces threaten us. He will show His great power on our behalf because He is a with you God. In fact, that's kind of the shorthand for the name Yahweh. On the one hand, it reflects upon God's never-changing character. I am who I am but it also focuses on the God who is with you. I will be with you. It's the Emmanuel principle. Hezekiah tells them, look at your God. He's with us. He's near to us. And how do the people respond? Well, unlike the children of Israel at the Red Sea, here the people took confidence from His words. Literally, the people rested themselves. They relied on the truth that He proclaimed. Brethren, the way to rouse confidence in the beleaguered people of God who are in tight places is to turn their eyes to the Lord, to the King who sits on the throne, to the God of unfailing covenant loyalty, to the God who comes close to His people with whom extremity is opportunity. The Lord brings us to the end of ourselves that He might show us His great power Weakness is no obstacle for God and might in the enemy is no threat to the display of His power. We, like Elisha's servant 
need eyes to see that those who are with us are greater. We need spiritual vision to understand that the Lord reigns, that He is a refuge and strength, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Think about how this works in the life of the Lord Jesus. When all the hordes of hell are threatening the faithful with Judas's treachery and Jerusalem's hostile leadership and Pilate's pragmatism and Herod's indifference, it all coalesces under the devil's master plan to strike Jesus. Even then, at the greatest moment of the greatest darkness, it just becomes a prelude to the power and deliverance of our God. Indeed, on that cursed tree, our covenant God, our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, fought for us. He helped us when we could do nothing. And beloved, that's what our God does. We have to rest our souls in God's power to save, in God's willingness to help, in God's compassion to stoop and to fight for us. Do you believe that God cares enough about you to fight for you? He's already done it on the cross. How could you forget? Surely, having seen all the battles our God has taken up for His people from the exodus of old to the new exodus in the death and resurrection of Christ, we should take confidence that our God is for us. You remember the question of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's not that there are no against us folk. There are. But their power against us means nothing in the face of the with you God. That remains true because God hasn't changed. Are you embracing the truth that God is your keeper? That He will allow no weapon formed against you to prosper. That you cannot be overcome. That your soul can't be ripped away from the Lord. Take courage in the Word of God and His promise. But then finally see with me contempt. Contempt. Soon after Hezekiah proclaims these words to the people, Sennacherib brings contrary words to undermine any trust in Hezekiah or in Yahweh their God. And to add weight to his words, Sennacherib is presently seizing Lachish, which is a, for, a strongly fortified city in Judah, one of those cities with, a, with walls all the way around. And he sends his own servants to pitch their poison to the people of Jerusalem. Now at Lachish, and again we know this because of archaeological discovery, at Lachish, battering rams broke down the walls, arrows and stones killed thousands of people, and the leaders of the city at Lachish were tortured and then pierced on poles. A prefigurement a bit of crucifixion. It was horrific. Well, news of that defeat at Lachish had certainly reached the city of Jerusalem. So Sennacherib's triumph trumps up his propaganda here. Through his emissaries, Sennacherib, like a fork-tongued serpent, he begins to seduce the people to abandon their trust in their king and the Lord. The claim in verse 11 is that Hezekiah is misleading the people. It's repeated again in verse 15, accompanied by the call, do not believe what Hezekiah is telling you. Brethren, this is downright demonic. The command from wicked King Sennacherib is, 
don't believe Yahweh's anointed one telling you the word of God. And don't rest your soul in the Lord. Two arguments are made which supposedly would save the people from needless death under famine and thirst. And we should note that the devil always makes faith in God sound foolish. The devil always suggests that his path will eliminate all your misery. Don't we see that even the temptation with Jesus? All this I will give you if you bow down to me. Nothing bad will happen to you if you serve me. Well, here, under Satan's influence, Sennacherib suggests that Yahweh will not deliver the people, like Hezekiah says. Why not? Well, two reasons are offered. Number one, didn't Hezekiah destroy all of his high places and altars? Verse 12. Now, if you're a thoughtful reader, you know this is a stupid argument. Hezekiah destroyed all the high places devoted to idols. He is focusing on worshiping Yahweh at the temple the right way. But this is a clever tactic of the enemy. It provokes political discontent. Knowing the history of Judah, it would be fairly obvious that not everybody would be happy with what Hezekiah was doing. The worshiping at the high places had been going on for hundreds of years. And removal of those high places threatened the people's tradition. You know what people do if you start threatening their tradition. You know what they do if you do it some other way than the way they've always been doing it. They get really upset. Well, Sennacherib is appealing to that. He doesn't care about proper Yahweh worship. He's just trying to stir up division and provoke doubt and to paint the king as untrustworthy. And then comes the second argument. Yahweh can't deliver you. Verse 14, Who among all the gods of these nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver His people from my hand? In other words, no god has prevailed over me, over my power, Sennacherib says. Your god is no different than the rest. Don't let Hezekiah depict your god as mighty to save because no god has stopped me. In fact, Sennacherib suggests that Yahweh is less than the other gods. Look at verse 15 at the end. How much less, that is in view of the failure of the other gods, how much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? The implicit argument here is, Yahweh is weak and unable to help you. It's exactly the kind of thing the devil wants us to believe in our troubles. He wants to throw contempt on God's power and presence by suggesting that the Lord won't help you. He's too busy. He's too detached. He's too impotent. David was told by his enemies in Psalm 3, there is no deliverance for you and God. Or the mockers at the cross yelling at Jesus, come down now from the cross and we will believe in you. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. The implicit argument being, God can't help you. You see, Satan proffers any argument to turn our eyes away from the Lord and he will pitch his lies persistently and loudly. Note that Sennacherib adds to his initial communication with letters, verse 17, to cast contempt on the Lord. And then when his servants come to the city, they shouted their slanders and mockery of Yahweh with a loud voice in the language of Judah to frighten and terrify the people. 
But the great folly of all this, repeated and raucous hype, is seen in verse 19. It's a staggering ending to the section. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. There's the truth in the midst of a sea of lies. Yes, Sennacherib, how amazing you are. You have whipped all these other nations and their gods because they aren't even gods. Pagans do this ridiculous thing. They take a tree, they cut it up, they use some of it for firewood, they bake their bread over the coals of it, and they roast their meat, and then the rest of it they use to make a god before whom they fall down and worship. Pagans don't have the sense to see that this wood, which he has shaped and adorned, and he has to carry around, can never save him. But Yahweh isn't like that at all. He is the living God. He demonstrated His power by casting the Egyptians into the sea, by dividing the waters of the Jordan at flood stage, by raining down fire from heaven when the temple worship started. He has enabled victory over walled cities like at Jericho. He has struck down giants like Goliath. He's routed enemies as numerous as the sand on the seashore with only Gideon's 300 people. Here, beloved, is where the devil overplays his hand. The devil isn't content to mock false gods. He targets the true God who has whipped the prince of darkness over and over again. And Satan must bow before the Lord. So this contempt of the Lord is the prelude to a coming victory. Now we haven't seen the victory yet. It's coming. But know already the principle that God will not be mocked. He will give His glory to no other. When wicked man exalts himself, humiliation is certainly coming. Surely you, you caught a glimpse of that in the Acts 1 reading. What happens to Judas after he betrays the Lord in his own devices? He hangs himself and all of his guts spill out. The Lord will crush His enemy. That is a firm truth to which we must hold when enemies slander our leaders, slander our faith, and slander our God. Yes, it's true when you look at your life, sometimes it seems that the odds are stacked in Satan's favor. Sometimes it seems like he's winning. Surely the dark scene at Golgotha appeared that way with mockers hurling their insults at Jesus Christ. But as Psalm 46 puts it, as the nations rage, threatening God's people with their contempt, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. That was true, the Exodus. When was it the Lord overthrew the Egyptian army? Well, the, the wind's blowing back the waters all night long, and then they pass, and morning comes, and water comes crushing down. When is God going to deliver His people here? It's going to be in the morning. You'll have to wait to see it. When are we helped by our greatest enemy or over our greatest enemy? Death, the devil, and sin. In resurrection morning, God will help us when morning dawns. So brother, we must learn some principles here. We must learn to say with David, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise. May we see that the vigorous contempt that is hurled at us or our God will never succeed 
May we cling to the Lord, be strong and courageous, and not be given over to sinful fear. May God help us. Brother, let's pray together. O Lord our God, we come and we praise You for the demonstration of Your power repeatedly in the Word, that You show us You are a God who can be trusted, and that You are our Ebenezer. Thus far, O Lord, You have helped us. You are a stone of help. Father, we pray that You would take our weak and faltering faith and show us again that You are the help of Your people. Come and help us in our various trials. Come and cause us to have our faith put on muscle as we see Your great power at work. Lord, would You steady us in the face of adversity because we look back and see that You are for us, proven on Golgotha's hill. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.